This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. As always, it's good to be with you. We are very lucky to have a very busy guest with us, Dr. Gary Levy, who is a dermatologist in private practice in Morningside in Johannesburg. Gary, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Dean. Quite exciting to be here. I know we've been trying to do this for quite a while. And now yeah, we've got it together. You're a very busy guy. I'm glad we got hold of you. Uh, for the viewers, uh, for the listeners, sorry, this is a, a pre-record. We're doing this on Sunday night before Monday. And uh, sorry, so you won't be able to SMS or, or send in any questions. But we'll try to hopefully cover as many topics as uh, possible to interest you. So, Gary, many people don't know that the skin is the biggest organ in the body. What interested you about skin that you chose uh, that you chose dermatology? A lot of people say, couldn't you chosen uh, something more exciting? But I know how much you lo- how passionate you are about the skin and how much you love it. Many years ago, I was a general practitioner, and while I was doing GP practice, I had an interest, believe it or not, in two things. The one was in ENT, and the other one was in dermatology, and. Um, when I when I looked at the ENT side of it, there seemed to be a lot of uh, time in surgery, and I thought that might not be so good for my family. So I'm telling you things that you know because you're the ENT today. And uh, I had an opportunity to get onto the registrar circuit um, when I was wanting to get out of GP practice, and so it all sort of came together about 30 years ago. Okay, so you said you did a few years before this, a few years of pediatrics, and then you uh, went into dermatology. So what do you see mostly? Yeah. Uh, you're obviously passionate about kids and about skin. What are the common things, skin rashes you see in, in kids besides bad uh, bad nappy rashes? Yeah, so the nappy rashes are actually few and far between, and I think that they get, they get handled more by uh, the GPs and pediatricians. We only tend to see the ones that um, don't respond to the normal treatments. I suppose the biggest uh, single thing that we see amongst the kids under the age of puberty is eczema. It's very common, especially in Gauteng, where the weather is dry and in the winter it is exceptionally dry. And in the summer, it's often aggravated by swimming pools. Um, A lot of the um, bigger swimming pools either have a lot of chlorine in or a lot of salt, and that tends to aggravate eczema as well. So the eczemas range from very mild um, uh, rashes where they really just need a little bit of emollient, and there are many, many different types and different flavor, different favorites amongst uh, doctors and amongst um, drug companies. And then, of course, there are the much more serious forms of eczema that really need um, specialized attention, um, lots of creams, sometimes light therapy, um, and, and even oral therapy. The, uh, um, we try not to go into oral therapy unless the kids are really in trouble. And uh, what's becoming quite uh, exciting, as you'd know, is the advent of the new biologics that are coming out. And there is a biologic that is registered overseas for uh, eczema. Um, it will probably come online later this year in South Africa. So that's really the bulk. We also see lots of warts and molluscum contagiosum, and my life would be much happier if there weren't things like warts and molluscum because they are such a pain and often um, painful to treat, and the kids don't like it, and you have to think up alternative things and homeopathic things that we try 
to coerce these uh, viral warts to go away. So uh, you said um, there's different types of eczema. What causes eczema? Um, why do children get it? And uh, what's the most uh, what's the most common cause and the most uh, common treatment? Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. The commonest cause of eczema is atopic dermatitis, which is really a genetic predisposition. And often there'll be a personal history or family history of eczema, hay fever, and um, asthma. They don't all have to present at the same time. So the kid might have eczema when he's a little baby and only get the, the hay fever or the asthma later on in life. But sometimes all three of them um, occur together. Um, so so that, that's, the, that's the biggest thing. The actual allergies to specific environmental things and specific food things are really few and far between. Um, they do happen. But, and, uh, you know, one can't just sort of have a blanket thing that is gluten and sugar and milk and wheat. That's the favorite of any alternative doctor. Cut out all of those and your life will be easy. Um, it's, it's not like that. The, the, those allergies and those sensitivities tend to impact on top of people who have got um, atopic dermatitis. So the, the, the biggest uh, single factor is the genetic inheritance of the predisposition to develop eczema. And especially here in Gauteng, where the weather is very dry, that tends to exacerbate it. While most of the eczemas come on after the age of six months, um, some of them are are there from birth, but most of them sort of develop a bit later. And at least 50% of them have petered out by the age of five or six, and 90% will have disappeared by puberty. Um, Studies have shown that if you treat the eczema um, aggressively, if you get it under control, it tends to turn off sooner in the child's life than if you just leave it to run its own uh, natural course. Um, And there are a couple of kids who slip into adulthood with their eczema, but you can't always predict that when you see them as a young child. You mentioned uh, that uh, some just need emollients. What what are emollients uh, just for our, our listeners? And then maybe you can go into a bit of the cortisone creams and, and the mixes and uh, how they work. So emollients are really just moisturizing creams. And um, the simplest, simplest one is emulsifying ointment. Emulsifying cream, uh, should I say, the, the, the aqueous cream, as everybody knows it. And these days there are slightly more sophisticated versions of um, aqueous cream, like Epimax and um uh, epiderm, and uh, some of them have got some seaweed in it. Um, but they're all sort of variations of the same thing. They're all creams. One of the problems with a cream is a cream is 50% water, and to prevent it from going off, they have to put a preservative in there. So some kids, especially those who are sort of tactile sensitive and those who have got quite severe eczema, when you put an ordinary moisturizing cream on them, um, when that, the, first of all, the preservative can irritate them, and when that water evaporates off the skin, it can actually be more drying than um, before. So, in the more severe cases, we tend to use ointments. So, ointments are sort of Vaseline-based um, emollients, and those things don't have any water in it. They're just made up of greases, and there's no evaporation that comes off the surface. So, while the ointment is better, it is less um, user-friendly. And, um, you know, the child goes to bed with uh, sort of greasy stuff on his body and wakes up in the morning and it gets put in him again. And it's not a bad thing if the child's a baby, 
But if he's going off to school and that, he doesn't want his clothing uh, all smeared with greasy stuff. And so often in those uh, more severe cases, we give them ointment emollients at night and um, cream emollients in, in the daytime. There are a couple of tricks that um, companies do, and they add urea to it because that binds more water. But in some people, the urea can actually be irritating. So it's often a matter of sort of feeling out your patient and getting an idea of what he or she might need and seeing the um, the previous creams that they've used and have failed that allows you to come to the right decision. But it's not a blanket thing where one size fits all. you really just got to um, feel your way through it to give each um, child the best uh, treatment. When, when do you add um, a cortisone or a, a steroid? So, so, uh, so, so most, most, um, most mothers who arrive at our, our rooms with uh, a child with eczema have tried the ordinary um, um, moisturizers and they're really not working. And, um, you know, even if they didn't know what to do themselves, their, their general practitioner or the nurse or the vaccination lady would have advised them some way to, um, to, to moisturize the skin. So the, the principle of using cortisone is to use the, the weakest amount of cortisone that, um, that, that you can. And most cortisones in this country come in a small 20 gram tube. So if you've got a child with eczema all over his whole body, that doesn't go very far. There's a product called Mylocort you can buy it over the counter. It's 1% hydrocortisone, but it's really very, very weak and it doesn't go far. So what we prefer to do is take a mid-strength cortisone like betamethasone and dilute it down five times, six times, ten times. So you get a jar of this stuff and you really got now a big jar of very weak cortisone that you can apply to large areas of the body. Um, when you're using weak cortisone, it doesn't thin the skin and it doesn't get absorbed so you won't get um, effects from cortisone like you would if you were um, taking the stuff orally. And um, a lot of parents um, who come are very reluctant to use cortisone. So what they do is they use it for a day, two days, four days, five days, and as soon as it's like 20% better and the kid's like tolerating the situation, they stop, and then they just relapse again. And it takes a lot of patience to explain to the mothers that they really need to treat this until it's under control and run under control before you start weaning the kid off the diluted cortisone. If the kid is rough, if the kid is itchy, if the kid is scratching, and if they're scratching at night in their sleep, they're not controlled. So th that's really um, to put out the fire. There are two um, there are two non-cortisone creams that are on the market, which are fairly popular. The one is called Elidol. It's a cream. And the other is called Protopic. It's an ointment. They're competition with each other. And the problem about those two products is, A, you can't dilute it. So if you've got large areas, it's very expensive because these those creams and ointments are expensive, and they don't work well in big in a lot of the areas. I know the if there's any pharmaceutical representative listening to this, they'll argue with me, but they work best in areas of like flexures, like the neck, the arms, behind the knees, on the face. But they don't yeah, work well. Yeah, I've started areas. using uh, Protopic quite a lot for the external ear canal and uh, the outer ear. I get a lot of patients with eczema and that, and it, it's worked quite well. Yes, so so you know it, um, but but it's, it's not predictable. So it's always worth trying, but it's um, 
It doesn't always work. The other thing is that Protopic and Elidol often don't put out fires, but they keep the fire out. So, um, you know, if you get like a really inflamed ear, you might not succeed if you just use Protopic. But if you control it first with the mid-strength cortisone and then you maintain them on Protopic, that's a good idea. But look what you're saying. You, you, you're taking Protopic and put it in the, in the, in the outer ear. I mean, that tube can last you six months. If yeah. you put it on the child's body, it can last you one week. Yeah, okay. And uh, we are, as an ENT, I often see the same thing with uh, moms being worried about cortisone, you know, the nasal cortisone or nasal steroids that uh, we use. They don't want to use long-term, even though there's no systemic side effects or they don't get absorbed into the body. So we have the same problem that they'll use it for a few days and uh, we don't see a real improvement. So, so very often if we have a child who's really um, severely affected, large areas, there's often secondary infection, those children often need some oral antibiotic and even oral cortisone for about five days just to put the fire out literally and, uh, and, and some topical cortisone. And then you can get by with just the topical cortisone and then you can convert them down to emollients and elidol and protopic. And those, the, 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 that, that regime can work pretty well. And if they slip out of control, then go back and use a bit of cortisone. And uh, as soon as they're better maintained, to come back to the non-cortisone creams and ointments. So that's kind of like a, a, a ladder, a therapeutic ladder. It's almost the same as asthma. Uh, you might use Ventolin on a need-to basis, then the next thing you're going to have to use your um, bronchodilator twice a day. And if that's not helping, you're going to have to add in the inhaled steroid. And when they get better, you can drop it down a bit. So it's a, it's a, a ladder, a therapeutic ladder that you run up and down the whole time. All right, Gary, thank you. We're going to take a shorter ad break and we'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Burson. We're speaking to Dr. Gary Levy, dermatologist in private practice in Morningside. And we've just been speaking about eczema in children. Does eczema offer, you said uh, most of them will outgrow it by the age of five or six. What about those that uh, carry on to adult with, adulthood with uh, eczema? Is it a lifelong disease? Those who sort of go beyond puberty, you never know when they're going to switch off and what things might affect them um, as they get older, so for example, some women will get worse during their pregnancy, and that's always a big problem. Um, and uh, there's certain uh, environmental factors. So uh, they find that living at the coast is better, living in Johannesburg is better. Um, and the nice thing about adults is they can kind of work things out for themselves a bit as opposed to when you've got a mother who brings a child in. But um, the adults, uh, the, the, the difficult adults can be difficult to control, and many of them will need some form of oral medication besides just topical creams and diluted cortisone creams. Um, and uh, that's often where we default to ultraviolet B light therapy. And there are only one or two places in Joburg that do that, so it's a bit of a nuisance. You have to get into your car. You have to drive there twice a, twice a, twice a week. Uh, it takes about two hours, the whole turnaround time. It's very cumbersome. And then there are other oral medications um, which uh, really come with uh, potential side effects like methotrexate and azathioprine and um, cyclosporin, but uh, sometimes those uh, medications have to be used to control the adults. 
Um, yeah, I know a lot of people living in Israel go to the Dead Sea and uh, lie in the dead, not for the water, but actually for the sun. Yeah. So the thing about the Dead Sea, it's 400 meters below sea level, which is a fascinating concept. And the amount of ultraviolet A that comes through there is, is greater. So the proportion of sunlight uh, reaching the body is different to any other place in the world. And a lot of people uh, get benefit, uh, more so people with psoriasis than with uh, eczema. Um, the, the, the whole uh, treatment of psoriasis has transformed. So in the old days, you used to get many, many um, Europeans coming to Israel to bathe in the sea and lie in the sun at the Dead Sea. Today, with the new biologic treatments, um, I think that's become a bit less popular, although in Israel, they obviously being in the neighborhood, they still do that. Well, let's jump over, use that opportunity to jump over to psoriasis. What exactly is psoriasis? Yeah, a lot of people speak about it. Yeah, psoriasis is an inflammation of the skin. It it is different to eczema. It it has a different inheritance pattern. There's often a family history of psoriasis. And um, you get inflammation, and it can really vary from a little bit of uh, inflammation, the external... um, uh, yeah, the external auditory canal, and you might often see a little bit of that. Uh, and those people might have a bit of roughness on the knees and elbows and a little bit of standruff on their scalp, and they never really get diagnosed as having psoriasis. They've just got some kind of scalp rash and a bit of itchy ears. To the more, um, the, 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 the more difficult forms of psoriasis, which give you big patches all over your body, and is very itchy, very uncomfortable. And what a lot of people don't know, but at least 15 to 20% of people with psoriasis of the skin will develop psoriatic arthritis where the joints will get affected. And in some people, the joints are affected years before the skin gets infected. So they go and see the rheumatologist, and the rheumatologist will say they've got seronegative arthritis because none of the tests are positive. But then a bit... Later, a few years later, when the skin gets involved, they put it all together and they say, um, you've got psoriatic arthritis. So in the old days, the treatment was really thought of just to put something on the skin. But today we know that um, psoriasis is actually an um, internal disorder where your lymphocytes, which are traveling around in your blood, um, give off certain chemicals called cytokines. And it's those cytokines that stimulate the skin to cause inflammation, and it's those same cytokines that cause inflammation in the joints. And um, as soon as you've got psoriasis that involves more than about 20% of the body, you're really not going to win with putting creams on the outside. You have to do something that turns off the cytokine cascade from within. And there are a whole lot of um, traditional drugs that have been used in the past, um, relatively inexpensive ones like methotrexate, which is well tolerated by about 60% of people, but the other 40% get nausea, tiredness, headaches, and in some people it doesn't work. And then um, you can start adding other things. Cyclosporin used to be a favorite, but with the advent of the new biologic drugs, it's actually transformed the way that uh, we manage psoriasis. And um, we used to say that we would like to get you 30% better or 50% better. Now we aim at 90-90. 90% of the population should be 90% better 
on their treatment. You know, um, just from your personal life, your married life, going to gym, going to the beach, if you're covered in all these scales and you're itchy and you're uncomfortable and you look terrible, you're not going to go to the beach, you're not going to go to gym, you're not going to exercise, you're going to get overweight. The um, obesity is a big comorbidity that drives the psoriasis. So it's all sort of cycles in the wrong direction. And if you can get these people's skin better and their joints feeling better, then they'll go to gym and they'll start running and they'll go to the beach and they'll feel better about themselves. So the value in treating these people and keeping them um, really 90 to 100% controlled is enormous. And uh, it's, it's really um, a very exciting uh, world that we live in today with, with uh, the new biologics. And there's several of them today, and there are more coming out as we speak. Now, um, moving on into the teenager age group, something that we all either have been through or we've seen, and I'm sure your practice is full of uh, uh, teenagers and adolescents getting acne. Easy to treat. Um, it's easy to treat. You just got you just got to speak to the parents. <laughs> um, so you know, um, acne is anything from uh, blackheads and whiteheads on the nose of a, a nine-year-old to severe, severe disabling and scarring acne that will um, cause um, much heartache to the individual that is affected by it. But sometimes we, um, the, girls, the girls start sooner than the boys. The, the girls can start at age eight or nine. Um, and uh, the thing about girls is they can start at any age from eight till 50. Um, they, uh, you, um, the females are very unpredictable when it comes to acne. And you can have acne when you're 14 and it can disappear and come back when you're 20 and, come, and then go away again and come back after your third baby. The guys are more predictable. We start around about 12, 13, um, sort of peaking at 16, 17, and then disappearing by uh, late, pu- late, late teens, um, early 20. So, And the other thing about the boys is once you get them better, they tend to stay cured, whereas the girls relapse much more often. So um, depending at what age and stage you arrive at the dermatologist, and often the people who are coming to us are coming a bit later because they've tried the -the over-the-counter treatments. They've been to their general practitioner and now they, um, and and it's not working. So the more mild cases are handled very well by um, topical products and uh, extremely well by um, general practitioners. General practitioners are very smart and they know how to handle um, acne. So the, the basic tenets are, first of all, you should keep your skin clean. And that's easy for the girls. The girls seem to learn that at a young age. We battle a bit more with the boys. Um, and then there are um, a number of face washes. Some of them are slightly more drying, um, especially in those boys who are very greasy. Others, um, like the girls, they need something that's slightly moisturizing but still cleans their skin. And then there's some topical products that kill superficial bacteria on the skin. Once you're getting pustules and... Um, acne lesions that aren't responding to topical medication, then you are faced with um, giving something orally to get the skin under control. And basically, um, your next line of treatment would be to give low-dose oral antibiotics. The commonest antibiotic used used are tetracyclines. Um, In this country, we also make use of um, Perbac, which um, also goes under the name of Bactrim, um, it's not popular in the UK because they think that you see too many side effects, 
but uh, we, we actually um, see very few side effects here in South Africa. And um, some people are allergic or intolerant to the one class of antibiotics, so we can try the other one. Some respond better to the one and less well to the other, and so you can switch around. In the older uh, girls, you have... Sorry to, sorry to interrupt there, but uh, is that uh, is the reason why the skin responds to the antibiotics because that uh, subset of acne respond, is caused by bacteria and that responds to yes. that, or is it another mechanism? So, no, so, so, so once you... Well, once you um, got beyond the, the blackheads, just plugging up the um, the oil glands, what tends to happen is the bacteria that live on the skin and in the pores start infecting the oil glands, and they cause a lot of inflammation. So if you can, so basically the two mechanisms of treating acne is you either have to kill the bacteria or decrease the amount of oil that the person's making. So. Um, the, the, the initial thing is we wash the skin and put on a topical antibiotic or topical cream, which will kill the bacteria. And then the um, if that's not working, then you're going to take oral antibiotics to um, kill the bacteria that are deeper in the, in the pores. Um, so um, the, it, 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 it some, sometimes you can assess whether the bacteria, the, the antibiotic is going to work or not, especially those people who've got a lot of um, pussy pimples, they usually do very well on um, lo- uh, topical lotions and oral antibiotics. But those people who are making lots of oil, they've got lots of block pores, and they've got big cystic lesions under the skin, um, you're going to battle to control them just with antibiotics. And uh, today you see adults of my age walking around with scarring because in the old days all we had to fall back on were antibiotics. Uh, we didn't have anything else. So if you have a situation where antibiotics are controlling the uh, acne, well, you can push ahead with that. In the older girls and in women, um, we have an advantage of using um, oral hormones and oral contraceptives, which can be very helpful in uh, controlling acne in women. But there are a lot of uh, reasons why some women and some girls don't want to be on the pill, um, um, sometimes they are intolerant to it. Others, it's a lifestyle choice. They don't want to be on the pill. And um, so it's not every woman that you can just default to and put them on the pill, and especially the younger girls. The younger girls, um, there's no need to, need to be um, interfering with their hormonal cycle until they have established a, a proper cycle and they're much older, and um, they might – and also there might be gynecological reasons why you want to put the young girls on the pill. They might be having uh, frequent periods, excessive bleeding, terrible uh, period pains, keeping them out of school. So there are a lot of uh, reasons why you may want to um, think about the pill. But uh, very often in young girls we're saying that that's for a later time and uh, we're not going to be doing that now. But the mechanism of the pill is to decrease oil production via the hormonal route and it decreases the oil by about 20 to 30%, and that can be effective in, in helping act. We got, we, just before, I know you're probably going to go into, uh, well, otherwise I'm going to ask you to talk about Rakuten, uh, which yes. is a common drug that everyone knows. We're just going to take a short break, and then we'll come back to talk about Rakuten. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're talking to specialist dermatologist, Dr. Gary Levy. 
and we're busy speaking about acne and we're about to talk about uh, Accutane, the famous drug, love it or hate it. I guess it uh, works. The side effects aren't so pleasant, but it must have revolutionized the treatment of acne. So Accutane, which is the trade name for isotretinoin, and today there are a number of generics in South Africa as well besides Accutane, um, has been around for over 30 years now. And um, it's, it's, it's proved to be a very effective uh, drug used in the right circumstances. Um, in days of yore, we used to be very aggressive with the dosaging and uh, the teaching that came from the gurus like Cunliffe um, stipulated that you must use at least half a milligram per kilogram of weight and you should try and get to one milligram per kilogram. Say, for example, if you weigh 70 kilograms, you should be using uh, somewhere close to 70 milligrams a day. And it was those regimes that made it very, very difficult to um, to take the course, especially here in Gauteng where it gets so dry. So Reaccutane's mechanism of action is it switches off the oil gland directly, not through the hormonal route like um, like it is with contraceptive pill, but it just goes to the oil gland and switches it, switches it off. And if there's no oil in the system, then the bacteria will die and they move away. And for some reason, that's not fully understood. At the end of the course of Raccutane, you seem to have altered the oil gland that the bacteria don't find it attractive anymore and they don't come back. So we have cure rates in the boys of like up to 90%. And in women at about 70%, but there's still about 30% who will relapse, and uh, we can discuss that a bit later. So in more recent years, we've become much more conservative in our dosaging, and I often joke that Roaccutane is like alcohol. The more you have, the more the side effects. And um, these days, especially in the boys, because the boys can get worse before they can get before they get better, and they can have a huge flare, and they can get markedly worse, we tend to be very conservative in our starting doses with Roaccutane and use very low doses like 10 or 20 milligrams and see how they respond. So if you're using 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams, even in Gauteng, you're likely to get dry lips, a bit of facial dryness, maybe a little bit of dryness on the, on the body, and that's about it. The, um, the other side effects like nosebleeds that you would see and uh, – irritable eyes and um, cracked skin and bleeding, um, we tend not to see that because the dosages are, are low. Of course, if the person doesn't respond to the very low dose, then one would up it slightly and incrementally increase it until you do see a response. So every now and again, you get a patient that sort of takes you by surprise because they don't respond as well as you think they're going to, but very often you're getting away with much, much, much lower doses that you, that you used to get away with. And a lot of the parents who had bad experiences with Roaccutane are reluctant to put their kids onto it because they anticipate they're going to have the same reaction. But with the dosages being much more conservative, it's much easier to put people onto Roaccutane. There are really three reasons why you want to go onto Roaccutane. The first one is you've tried everything else and it doesn't work. The second one is that you have really severe acne when you present and the doctor knows that you um that you're not going to respond to anything else. 
And the third one is that um, you've tried other things, and they do work, but every time you stop that mechanism like antibiotics or contraceptive pills, you relapse again. So this is a shot to try and get rid of the acne once and for all. Um, Racutane is not something that you should just get a script, disappear for six months, and uh, and then come back if you have problems. Uh, the patients have to be monitored. They have to... Um, come for slightly more frequent visits. With WhatsApp these days, it's a bit easier. If people are having problems or they, um, they're concerned about something, they can send a picture. A picture's worth much more than uh, a thousand words. And um, we can offer the patients pretty good care without seeing them too often and uh, get wonderful results. Um, we really shouldn't be seeing adults today uh, or older teenagers We've got scarring from um, from acne. We'd, we'd really like to get in there sooner to prevent the scarring. Um, people with darker skin can scar more easily, so um, I often want to intervene at an earlier uh, stage with Roaccutane than in more fair-skinned people who can tolerate a bit of inflammation without scarring. But Roaccutane certainly has a big place to play in the treatment of acne, I know there are a lot of people who don't like it, but a lot of the people who don't like it have never used it and they don't know much about it. Well, I'm sure, as you as you said, the parents were, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, put on 260 milligrams straight away, having a massive flare-up, and then uh, felt my lips were so dry that, I could, you know, they would fall off onto hand them to you on a plate. But uh, it's, it's, great, it's great that uh, now you're putting on the lower doses, and I'm sure those are tolerated by parents and by children. Yeah, it, it's it's a pity that low dose Roaccutane doesn't have another name, um, be, because we could sort of say no, we're not doing Roaccutane, we're doing Degersentane, <laughs> and, and then uh, sort of there wouldn't be those bad connotations. Sure. Um, and, and you know, people are worried about um, damage to the liver. The liver is a huge organ, and um, you 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 almost never see problems. In fact, you see more problems with antibiotics than you do with Roaccutane from a health point of view. Um, so, you know, and properly managed, um, Roaccutane is, is really a good drug. And as I said, there are some, uh, cheaper generics. I'm not sure they're all quite as good, but there are some that are good. And, um, we, we tend to get good results today with very few side effects and very good effects. Okay. Very good. Okay. Now your real passion you told me earlier was skin cancer, especially being in South Africa, sunny, nice sunny country. A lot of people spending time in the sun and it's coming up for summer now. Do you want to tell us a bit about uh, um, skin yeah. cancers, the risk factors, and what people should be doing to protect themselves going into summer? So, so the whole thing has become a little bit more difficult these days with COVID because vitamin D is a very important uh, preventative uh, factor, uh, so we told for COVID, and we know that uh, over the last couple of years there's been a lot of vitamin D deficiency. So, and people have been supplementing vitamin D, but vitamin D is actually freely available. You just have to walk outside and expose yourself to the sun, and you'll get vitamin and you'll get enough vitamin D. On the other hand, the amount of skin cancer that we see in this country is enormous. The burden is huge, and we're not just talking about little things that uh, sort of will cause a bit of irritation on your forehead. We're talking about life-threatening skin cancer. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, 
to, just to start off, there are two main types of skin cancer. There's what we call melanoma skin cancer. That's when you have a mole that becomes cancerous. And you get what we call non-melanoma skin cancer. And there are two main types of that. The most common one is called a basal cell carcinoma, also sometimes referred to as a rodent ulcer. And the second one is a squamous cell carcinoma. So the basal cell carcinoma is by far the most frequent skin cancer that we see in the world and by far the most frequent cancer that we see in South Africa. And in the mornings, because that's when I see um, mainly adults, we see about one basal cell carcinoma an hour. I mean, and that's a lot. So basal cell carcinoma can be anything from a tiny little um, scab that won't heal and it does heal, but then you pick it off and it bleeds a bit. And uh, the treatment of that is relatively easy, especially if they're in non-central parts of the face. So if you've got a little basal cell carcinoma on your back or on your leg or on your chest, it can be dealt with very easy in the consultant rooms. When you have one that's on the nose or on the eyelid or on the lip, then technically that becomes much more difficult. And if you just cut them out or scrape them out, the patient is going to be left with a scar and a defect for life. So the sooner we get to treat them, the better. And obviously, if you have instrumentation that assists you in diagnosing it, it's so much better. And um, and those people who've had basal cell carcinomas are more likely to get a second and a third and a fourth because we know that they've had enough sun to cause the initial one. Squamous cell carcinomas are more rare. We see less of them, but squamous cell carcinoma left untreated can spread and go to lymph nodes and can go to distant sites in the body. And the most um, severe form of skin cancer is the, the cancerous mole called a melanoma. And um, if left untreated, it will spread down into the lower parts of the skin, get into the lymph system, travel to lymph nodes and travel to distant sites and can be fatal. Most people who die from melanoma had that melanoma visible on their skin at a stage that if it was cut out early, it would have saved their life. So I'm just going on to melanoma for a second. I talk about the ABCDE rules of melanoma, and that's if you have a mole. A stands for asymmetry. So the mole should sort of be more or less round when you look at it. B is the border. The border should be nice and regular and shouldn't look like the the the, the, the inroads of the coastal plains. You know, when you look at the map, it should be nice and round. C is the color. The color should be brown, sort of one color, maybe two colors of brown, but not many colors. And black is a bad color in a mole. D is diameter. If it's less than six millimeters, it's usually, it's probably okay, but you can get small melanomas. And then the most, most important thing is E, which is evolving. So it's changing. So you have this mole that has changed. It might not have an irregular border. It might not have many colors. It might not be bigger than six millimeters, but it's evolving. It's changing. And any lesion that's changing should be brought to the attention of a doctor. There's one other little mnemonic you can use, and that's EFG. And um, occasionally, and they're very rare, but if you have a mole that's elevated, firm, and growing, EFG, you've got to take that to the doctor. Those can be a, a very dangerous. 
and uh, you shouldn't wait months and months if you've got a, 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 a bump that is suddenly growing. You should take that to the doctor as soon as possible. Um, so 95% or maybe more of melanomas are caused by uh, sunburns. Um, all basal cell carcinomas are caused by sunburn, and most squamous cell carcinomas of the skin are, 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 are caused by sun exposure. So um, on the one hand, we're telling the patients to get a little bit of sun for their vitamin D, and on the other hand, we're telling them that if you're susceptible, a little bit too much sun is, can cause trouble and can cause big trouble. Um, so that is why if you have any rough spot, any sore, any mole, any scab that just doesn't heal for a long period of time, you have to take it to a doctor. Um, most general practitioners um, sort of are in tune with what's happening and they can examine your skin and give you good advice. But today with new instrumentation and uh, computerized uh, assistance, we've become really super efficient at diagnosing these cancers at a very young, at a very early stage. And um, not only can we diagnose it, but we can record these moles, we can monitor them, and we can see subtle changes early on, and that can help us diagnose skin cancers at a much earlier stage. We're going to take another short ad break, and when we come back, we can speak about uh, sun creams and prevention. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Hey, welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Gary Levy, dermatologist in private practice in Morningside. We've just been on a tour of the skin, and now we're busy speaking about uh, skin cancers and that the majority of skin cancers are caused by sunburns or sun exposure. So, uh, Gary, you mentioned that obviously sun isn't bad for us. We need to balance the need for vitamin D and uh, getting out in the sun, but uh, not too much sun that's going to damage our skin. So how do we protect our skin and how much uh, sun is dangerous? You know, that's, that's a very difficult thing to answer because if you are have a darker skin and you don't burn very easily, you can spend much more time in the sun than as opposed to your fair-headed, blue-eyed friend who's lying on the beach next to you. Um, so, you know, we, we believe that you shouldn't be tanning. You shouldn't put your towel down on the beach and lie there and tan. And that um, if you, you know, and we, we live in a wonderful country and we want to go to all these wonderful dams that we have in the beaches and um, hiking. So we shouldn't stop that. So the first and most important thing is to wear protective clothing. And... Um, we know that a lot of skin cancers occur on the face, so it's very easy to put a hat or cap on your head. And um, if you are susceptible to the sun or you're going to be in the sun for a long time, you can wear long sleeves. And when you go to the beach, you should be sitting under the umbrella. And if you want to go swim, then take off your top and go into the water and swim. And when you come back, dry yourself, spend five minutes in the sun warming up, and then put on your sunscreen and get into the shade again. Um, you shouldn't burn. Burning is is really a bad thing. Um, if you have a look at the number of blistering sunburns that people have got, they re- relate directly to the number of skin cancers that they're going to develop at an older age. <clears throat> so having protected yourself with clothing, we now get down to the sunscreens. And um, sunscreens are a bit like margarine. They go through different phases. At some stage they're good and some stage they're bad. 
But I can tell you now that more people die from not using sunscreen than from using sunscreen. I don't think sunscreen has killed anybody, despite what the green people are going to say out there, how bad it is for your skin. The newer sunscreens have a lot of uh, products that have been excluded from them. Um, most of them have got uh, FDA approval. So you can't just put any kind of chemical into a sunscreen anymore. And most sunscreens are a combination of three or four different products that rule, that screen out ultraviolet A, some of them ultraviolet B, some of them sort of go across the spectrum. And they put two or three or four products in the, in the sunscreen to make it the factor that it is. We believe that you shouldn't be using any sunscreen with a factor less than 15. And uh, most often we are talking about a sunscreen over factor 30. You see, if you put on factor th- um, 15 and you don't put it on properly, you're only going to get, say, factor 5 or 6 benefit. If you put on factor 30 and you don't put it on properly and you slide down the scale a bit, you're still going to get good sun protection. So today uh, most sunscreens are, are pegged at uh, factor 50, it might say 50 plus in the old days it went up to 100 but the difference between 50 and 100 is negligible and if you're using a sunscreen between 30 and 50 that should be very good the other thing about sunscreens is they get wiped off, they get sweated off, they get rubbed off and um, you have to reapply them so you can't just sort of go to the beach at 9 o'clock in the morning and think you're covered until, um, until 4 o'clock in the afternoon especially if you playing beach bats and you're going to the water and you're coming out and you're towel drying yourself. You've got to reapply it. You've got to reapply it. Kids going to school, I think kids going to school should have the exposed parts of their body uh, covered with sunscreen. And if they stay for um, if they stay for extramural activities, they should reapply it again. There's been a lot of talk on sunscreen preventing vitamin D from being made. And recent studies show that uh, that, that we don't put on sunscreen thick enough to stop us making vitamin D. So you really shouldn't be, you shouldn't refrain from using sunscreens because you think you won't get your vitamin D dose. I think if you're going, if, if you're a person like myself who doesn't see much sun and you're only going to get in the sun two afternoons a week for 20 minutes, well, you probably don't need sunscreen. But for people who are going to the beach doing outdoor activities, really you should depend on the sunscreen. Um, it can save you a lot of trouble in the future. Okay, really some sound advice. I thought you were a runner, Gary. I thought that you spent a lot of time in the sun. Now, the trouble is most of us at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, um, like many uh, adults my age, when I checked my vitamin D level, I was low. So I actually take an oral supplement these days. Um, and, um, you know, vitamin D is important not only uh, not only fashionable now, but certainly, especially amongst women, as they go into menopause, they become osteopenic and osteoporotic. You need it for that. Um, they've shown that low vitamin D levels are associated with depression. It um, has some function in, in normal cardiac functioning. And today, especially now with COVID, we know it has a, a, a big role to play in your immune system. So we really don't want to be vitamin D deficient, but we don't want to get blistering sunburns either. So it's a very tight balance that we have to walk, but I think it's possible to get some sun without burning. All right, brilliant. Well, I've really enjoyed the, this chat with you. If people want to make an appointment to come see you, how do they get hold of you? Um, so we're in the phone book. Um, okay. um, well, you say you're at Rochester Place in Morningside. I'm at Rochester Place at Morningside. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been good chatting to you. Um, okay. 
Thank you. I appreciate you taking out the time on this uh, Sunday night to do this pre-recording. Thank you to our listeners for joining us in. I hope you found that uh, as uh, informative and entertaining as as I did. And please join us next week again, 101.95 FM.